Hi, welcome to Tales from the Sky Lounge. It's a podcast about consulting, management, and venture investing. We get out there in the world and we talk to people who are making it happen, traveling, seeing the customers, and have experience in the market. So today we have Jan Haybrook in the Sky Lounge. Welcome, Jan. Hey, Todd. Good to see you again. Good to see you. So, Jan, you are in the exec ops practice at TechCXO. And why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Uh, thank you for having me. And uh, it's good to do this, uh, not in a Sky Lounge, but uh, in the comfort of our own home offices. Um, I'm a partner with exec ops uh, for TechCXO and help scaling companies to uh, you know, do a better job at scaling up than what I experienced myself being an entrepreneur. Uh, working as a CEO, CEO or chief revenue officer to really bring best practices to uh, these companies and help them accelerate more quickly. So one of the really significant things that formed your uh, experience in your career is you had a company that you started and ran. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, so I started my company in 2007. It was a market research and physician engagement company uh, you know, focused on my clients were pharmaceutical companies, life sciences companies, uh, and built that up over the course of close to 17 years to a business that ultimately I sold to a medical education company uh, in 2021 wow. and uh, had all the experiences that an entrepreneur has, uh, the trials and tribulations, the uh, self-doubt, uh, the high fives and the, and the low moments. Uh, the whole journey was, uh, I would say, a typical entrepreneur's journey. <laughs> I don't think they're all there's such a thing as a typical entrepreneur, <laughs> but I think we all, you know, have have that uh, DNA where you have a little bit of grit. You have to get through a lot of interesting things. And, and it's always a challenge every day, um, you know, with what life throws at you. Um, so, you know, one of the really cool things, I think, you know, and congrats on your um, exit, you know, taking a company and, and then growing it and then um completing that M&A process, which is like a, a whole nother skill set that nobody understands. You know, you have to switch hats from being a, a CEO and then, you know, a deal maker and then, you know, a closer, um, you know, there's got to be a few interesting nuggets. Um, and it's such a rare thing, to, uh, you know, to be the exited entrepreneur, um, it's super valuable for venture uh, people. Um, so why, what, what did you learn going through that process that made, makes an exited entrepreneur so valuable. Um, why is that such a rare thing? Oh, gosh, why is it such a rare thing? I think, you know, there's some recent research that looked at failures uh, of high-tech startups and surprising. You now, they looked at, I think, 214 companies and, and a couple of databases that captured the reasons for failure. Um, and of those companies, only about 14% make it to five years and longer. And I think I've seen some other stats where, you know, reaching 10 years uh, as a new business and being profitable, you know, is probably less than 10%, around the 7% mark. Wow. And if you think then about those companies that are getting sold or getting bought, uh, about a quarter, probably. Um, so you're looking at, you know, single digits, basically, of the 100 companies that start, you know, a single digit 
uh, ultimately leads to an exit. Uh, you know, despite all the news around the, the, the big successes, it's, it's pretty rare. Um, and I think you use the word process. I think that's a key thing to keep in mind that, that M&A or selling a business is nothing but a process. Um, you've got to be prepared for it. You've got to really organize your company to be ready for a sale and then be opportunistic. And you can do a process where you obviously have a bid book and, and it's run by a banker. Um, and that can certainly be something, but even there, it's opportunistic. You know, talking to PE companies and seeing how many uh, LOI letters they send out and how many of those actually convert to a deal, it's less than 20%. So even for the people that are really in the business of buying and selling businesses, it is not something that happens all the time. Wow. Yeah. And then so um, of the opportunities you got, would you say all of them were planned or did you get some random interesting ones that came by? Um, and how do, how do you think about that? Yeah, I think all of them started with a conversation. You know, it's, hey, can we talk? Uh, and <laughs> would you be yeah. interested? And I had the opportunity before I actually sold to be part of two other processes that actually ended up uh, being a dud at the altar because some of the negotiations just didn't pan out. Uh, for this one, uh, back in 2019, I had made a mental decision. This is, I am now building the company to sell. And before that, I really kind of was on the, on the cusp of, you know, will I sell? Will I, is this a lifestyle business? I don't know. But then I made the decision. I want to sell, brought in a partner to help really ramp up the, uh, the the organization, brought in some capital. And in 2021, April of 2021, got a call from a banker that I knew and said, hey, uh, I have this client who just missed out in a bidding war to buy another company. You're a similar company. Are you interested to talk? And I said, yeah, talking is all, all right, always, always ready to talk. And I knew it came from a qualified lead. Um, Two weeks later, we had an LOI, and about two months later, end of July, the, I sold the business because wow. there was a, a good fit. Uh, the party that I was dealing with did not renege on the, the, the principles and the, the, the commitments that they uh, put forward. You know, the, the, the agreement that we had at the beginning of the process was also the agreement at the end of the process. And the due diligence was a lot of hard work, but basically it was to show I've got nothing to kind of hide. You know, I'm being transparent and that may be my cultural heritage uh, that, that comes <laughs> into play there too. And yeah. um, you're Dutch, we, right? Dutch. Yeah. Dutch. And, and we're very kind of blunt and direct and, uh, and, and transparent. Yeah. Uh, but I, in the process, I definitely learned a number of things. One of the things that I think was a key learning is that, you know, uh, set your walk away point. There is going to be a point where you want to walk away from the negotiation. So have that clearly set. Um, you probably can negotiate two to three times. It depends a little bit who's the counterparty, but you know, I'm talking about major uh, discussions. Um, and when you've got maybe a contract where you don't like three or four of the things that they've put forward, be prepared to get your say on two or three of those. You're not going to get your say on four. And so what, what, is, what is the one that you want to negotiate out? Which is the one that you would want to drop? 
Um, and it can be very different for every business. Uh, so that was an important part. Um, and you'll be ready to be ready for that process. <clears throat> In our case, I would say the M&A part and particularly the due diligence part probably took 40 to 50% extra time. So think about it as a CEO, you're spending 50, 60, 70 hours a, a week on a, on your, your company. Now suddenly it's 110 hours or 120 hours, you know, with 166 hours, that's not a whole lot of hours left in the day to do your other stuff. And it can really be a distraction. Um, if I think back about the first two processes where I was probably not as uh, experienced and spend a lot of time on the due diligence side, I cer- and we didn't close, I certainly felt it the quarter or the two quarters afterwards. In sales, I was very responsible for sales and I'd taken my eye a little bit off the ball and it had a ripple effect down downstream. And so be prepared for it because until the deal is signed and the money is wired, the deal is not done. <laughs> no. Not done till it's done. And uh, I like the old, you can go back twice, but uh, you know, after that you risk the deal falling apart and negotiating. Uh, I think that's- Well, it's that's no good... different. It's, it, 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 I would say the M&A process, I mean, you're dealing with humans, right? You're dealing between people. Uh, it's no different than any other negotiation, either for a position or for a business contract. It's the same thing. Um, so the human dynamics absolutely play. So it sounds like you had a couple of duds and then you, you had a really good diligence. Uh, sounds like, you know, two months, gosh, that's, that's pretty smooth sailing. Um, how did you set up for that? Um, was there, you know, kind of a thought process into, you know, organizing your records and then, you, you know, after one or two of these, you kind of know what they're going to ask. Um, you know, what, um, how, how do you think about, you know, what advice would you give to organize if you're, you're thinking about, you know, potential sell, yeah, it's a great question. And um, I think, as I said, we started in 2019. And one of the things that we did was we changed, for instance, our financial system from a desktop based system to a cloud based system. You know, that may no, no longer be as much of a consideration. But think about that. You know, so think have your files organized in a way they will want to see all of the contracts that you've got with your clients over the past three years. So have those ready organized. Um, They will want to know what commitments you've made. They will want to know where their potential liabilities. So have the insurance. I needed to have cyber security insurance. Well, now that's no no longer like a a question mark. It's a given. You have to have that in the business that is uh, active on the web. Four years ago, not so much. It was not so much a given. So it's putting those things into place so that you're ready to uh, shift quickly. I think one of the things, because I didn't want, you know, I didn't have a huge team. So I involved a few folks in my team that kind of were under the tent. So they knew about this transaction and they could help me. But at the end of the day, most of the people in the organization did not know about this. So how can you ensure that you can deliver on your materials, the, the, the requests that have come, without other people knowing. So what I did actually for a number of our, um, I would say critical systems, I gave guest access and said, you know, here's the password, here's the login, you go and search and find whatever it is that you want to find. And I think that helped, that transparency helped the process. Uh, You know, so I had kind of 
nothing to hide under the kimono. Uh, you know, come and come and look, warts and all. Uh, and if you've got questions, happy to explain why something is the way that it is. And I think that yeah, allowed so. for a lot of confidence from the the purchasers. Yeah, it, it, transparency is a huge deal. We talk about that on just about every podcast. It seems like. Um, but, you know, I, I know a lot of these deal folks are, you know, all they, they know that there's something right. There's a gotcha somewhere and they just they they go until they find it. And then, you know, a lot of times it's how you react to that. And, it's, you know, hey, yeah, I got warts. <laughs> you know, I, I own it in and absolutely completely upfront with you. And it, it didn't take them a whole lot, a lot of time to find it. You know, I, I think that, you know, it's OK to be less than perfect. Uh, cause nobody is right. And that's part of why they're buying you is, you know, they feel like some of the parts is better than, you know, yeah. the, the pieces individually. Um, and, so, and, um, and sorry. And, and, and I found just to, to dovetail on that, I found also that the transparency and basically asking to do due diligence on the acquirer, on the buyer, mm-hmm. And asking uh, them for certain things that they asked me for in the kind okay. of to, to make it a level playing field was really sure. helpful. I mean, the company that yep. bought me was much, much larger, but it puts you at a level playing field. So I think that helped the process. Well, what did you ask for? What, what do you think, like, in retrospect, what were the kind of like big things you're like, oh, man, I'm so glad I asked that question in the yeah, due diligence asked, of the acquirer? Yeah. Um, I would, uh, I think, you know, it's going to be specific to every situ- situation. In my case, yes, absolutely asked for financials uh, and kind of not all, just the financials of the previous years, but also what are the plans for the, the coming years and where do we fit in the plans? There was pushback on kind of, you know, no, we're talking about you, my company, and where that fit within the, the, the roll up. That was something to be decided. But I said, no, but you've... You're interested in my company, so why are you interested in it? Have you talked to competitors? Have you talked, you know, you've looked in the marketplace, you've filled to be successful on a previous bid. What do you think? Why is that the case? Was it just a financial piece or were there some other kind of areas of non-fit that caused that deal to fail? Um, and so what are you seeking in, 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 in our company? Are you planning to make it, uh, you know, to, to, to kind of boot me out the door and make it into your own, mold it into your own company? Or are you interested in me? Are you know, kind of, are you acquiring the company also because of the talent that I'm bringing to the table? And so yeah. those were the, some of the questions that I asked. Yeah. So it sounds like you got good answers. Was there anything that you were like, mm, not sure. And then you had to negotiate no more than twice. <laughs> right. Uh, no, I don't think so. I think, you know, just also remember that, all of this happened in the COVID time frame, oh, right. or post, you know, kind of right around post COVID. Um, so, you know, when we first got together, management of the company that had bought me, and they had just been acquired by the PE firm uh, in December of 2020. And us, that was the very first time in August of 2021 that we all were in one room. Wow. So everything wow. was done virtually. Uh, until that point, which makes it even more difficult if you don't know the people. So, you know, doing your diligence, asking around, asking for, you know, kind of references, uh, those kinds of things were really important. So post-close, you know, you you begin that merge, the the act, you know, first of all, how did you celebrate when the deal was done? Did you do anything crazy? Um. 
when the deal was done, I was actually sitting in a parking lot waiting for a meeting. Uh, and I was by myself uh, with uh, all the lawyers on the call. And everybody says, yes, agree to move forward, agree to move forward, agree to move forward. And that basically is then the, the trigger to, to wire the money. Um, and so I celebrated by ramming my steering wheel and saying, yes, got this. Uh, uh, and, yeah. and then celebrated with some, some fellow entrepreneurs who I was meeting with uh, uh, just right after. I, I didn't do anything silly. I think uh, I really – the thing that I really appreciated that uh, the purchase allowed me to do was I brought over um, all of my wife's and my family, direct family, so parents and siblings and, and, and uh, cousins or nieces and nephews, and we celebrated uh, together uh, for a week in the North Georgia mountains, and that was fantastic. So it was just That's a awesome. celebration of uh, life successes. Family. You got to take care of the family. Exactly. That was, awesome. what, that was the big, big high-five celebration. And then you bought a red car. Uh, sure. Yeah, red yeah, muscle who car. doesn't have to have a red car with the board? Right? <laughs> yeah. And then, um, so um, post merger, you know, how did that go? Um, you know, there's always kind of interesting, you know, stitching together of, I don't know, culture and systems and then, you know, realigning that org chart, you know, talk, talk about those experiences. You know, was the culture good? Um, was it a good fit? Um, you know, did, did you have any weird like hiccups with the, you know, the, the, the post close actual integration? I think, you know, uh, you will always have hiccups and if there's good transparency and good communication, uh, then you should be able to work through it. Um, you know, I think in my particular case, because it was a combination of a number of companies coming together only a few months before, and then we joining uh there was a, a a fair amount of focus on financial integration and hr integration very quickly um i think we probably should have paused a little bit on the product side integration uh and really give us a chance in the marketplace to kind of you know uh continue our growth path uh, so that's probably in hindsight something that i would have paused on i think for um the seller uh, you know, the owner, CEO, and especially if you move forward with a new role, you get excited. What I have not been able to figure out yet is, you know, if you think about the roller coaster ride that you've lived for 5, 10, 15, 17 years in my case, and you put on top of that, you know, three, four, five months worth of extra work in terms of due diligence and the negotiations and all the stress that goes along with it, you really need a break. You need like a, a clean break from that whole process, from the company, et cetera. And that, I'm not talking about a week off or two weeks off. I'm, I, I think you need a, a longer break than that. But how can you manage that correctly with the right messaging to your people, to the new company, to your customers? Because, you know, the perception could really be, oh, you know, Jan just got a, a nice check and he says sayonara. See you later. And that's <laughs> yeah. not the case because you're committed to your own company. You're committed to the new enterprise. You're committed to your people and to your customers. And that's the, I, I have not figured out a good way to handle that. Uh, yeah. I didn't figure out a good way to handle it. And I think it's as a, as a prospective selling 
uh, entrepreneur, something to really be mindful about because you're going to yeah, need to rebuild your own energy. So decompress, but don't check out. Okay. Yeah. Correct. Well, I mean, that's a hell of a deal. Uh, congratulations on that. And, you know, it's like, you know, overnight success, you know, it just took a couple decades, right? <laughs> and uh, now you have a lot of scars and a lot of experience um, that most people just will never know about. Um, no, it's, so it's, that's it's, awesome. It's, yeah, it's the it's the areas in the on the head where you know there's no hair more growing anymore because it's the scars on the brain that prevent from you know, from that to grow. <laughs> yeah, well, let's talk about healthcare. You know, where's healthcare going right now? You know, what what trends do you see in the healthcare industry? I know that's kind of a big uh, umbrella. <laughs> it means a lot. You know, different things to different people. What, how do you how do you view the industry uh, as it sits today? Um. It's complex. It's complex and it's regulated. Um, and I think that, um, you know, so there's similarities to the banking world or some other really regulated industries. Uh, you have to always consider that you've got, you're dealing with uh, clinicians and, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the institutions that provide the healthcare, hospitals, you know, practices, et cetera. You're dealing with payers those that are paying the insurers to, that are paying for the services rendered. Um, you've got to think patients and you also have to think life sciences companies, you know, the, the companies that make the tools or the drugs that are used to provide the healthcare. So it's a really complex area. I, I think it's because of the complexity, it's very sticky. Change doesn't happen overnight. Uh, in fact, I yeah. think there's, been very relatively little change in the last 40, 50 years. It's incremental changes um, and people are pretty conservative on top of that. I think one of the key differences, probably if you think about it from 20 years ago, that as a patient, you are far more in control of your own health plan and your own you know, treatment uh, because of the democratization of information. You know, uh, Patients are incredibly well informed, and so you're Dr. more Google. of a partner <laughs> of a clinician than you are kind of the subject. Uh, so I think that is a big change. But if you think about, you know, has something meaningful, truly kind of upsetting the industry happened yet, like Uber to taxis or Airbnb to hotel reservations or, and on and on and on? Not yet. I don't think that it's there yet. There's incremental changes like telehealth. Uh, there's really important changes to uh, treatment, you know, personalization, personalized medicine started in cancer. It's now going into the genetic disorders, et cetera. There is definitely change there. I mean, and a good example is uh, CAR-T where, you know, if you have a certain blood cancer, you know, your um, immune cells are harvested. They're sent off to a lab. Uh, those uh, immune cells are weaponized and then, place back into the patient to treat or, uh, you know, aggressively uh, attack the cancer that uh, the, the patient is suffering from. I mean, thinking about that 20 years ago, that was like sci-fi and that is happening right now. Um, but it's really expensive still because of the individual part. So incremental changes, absolutely. But still, I'm looking for that, that Uberization of, of healthcare. So and, uh, and, telehealth and, was and, good. Yeah, go ahead. No, and I think you know AI 
uh, and, and the advances that AI provide in terms of cutting through the clutter, very quickly getting to something that is relevant to you, mm-hmm. I think it has a real big problem, a promise in, in healthcare. So we, you know, uh, computer vision is one of the things that, that I've been on uh, for a long time, but, you know, reading x-rays and then, you know, AI getting to the point where they can read the radiograph, you know, better or more accurately, you know, when detecting cancer or something very specific, um, you know, it's gotten to the point where it's better than some specialists in, in a lot of cases. Is that the kind of AI we're talking about or, you know, are there yeah, expert so. systems? I mean, um, AI expert systems, the ability to process huge volumes of data very quickly and pretty accurately and, and sift it through to a level where as a professional, then you can look at the, the things that have been flagged by the machine or by the computer or by the program. Um, absolutely. Um, and that's, you know, medicine is as much a science as it is an art. And when you think about how, clinicians, doctors uh, make decisions, you know, it's based on their years of experience, hearing from colleagues how to handle a certain situation and going by gut sometimes, but certainly also using science. So it's a very complex kind of decision process. So if AI is available to them, they are going to make decisions more quickly because they've got access to much more data and access to meaningful data much more quickly. I always think about that. Uh, what's that TV show? Dr. House, MD, <laughs> you know, where he's got like a bunch of geniuses around him and they go, okay, this is really weird. You know, give me options. And then everybody's like, well, because of these symptoms, we suspect that. Okay. Give me something else. Be, well, she's got this and this. And so is that kind of what AI is going to do? They give you all the options and then you're still going to need a very smart doctor at the bottom of all that, you know, or is it going to yeah, be, the, you know, here, here's the, a Google bot and it's going to tell you what you have <laughs> and prescribe the meds for you. It's the analysis that what they call differential diagnosis. You know, is it is it disease A or disease B or disease C? And here are the symptoms that go each each of them and when they occurred. I think the AI can absolutely help in in filtering that process uh, more quickly and feeding it with information from you know uh, studies that have been occurring somewhere. You know, the, a good example is an entrepreneur friend who has a daughter that. Uh, just was really, really challenged in development early on. And, you know, uh, finally after, and this is a story that you will have in your own family, and we certainly have seen in our family too, you know, visiting 8, 10, 15 different doctors, and nobody can actually pinpoint to the problem until someone said, oh, I just read about this uh, disease, and, you know, it affects only 2,000 patients in the U.S., well, with 340 million you know, uh, that's a very, very small number of, of, of patients. How would you know about that disease? Well, I just read about it. And actually, the symptoms match what I've read. Therefore, that disease could be a, a situation and do genetic testing. Oh, and yes, now I actually have the confirmation that that person had that particular disease. That's a process where I think AI can absolutely help to speed that up. Bring out the uh, the the long tail, you know, oddball things that you might not, you know, have have thought about. Correct. Um, so where does all this research happen? You know, it used to be, you know, short list John Hopkins or I don't know Emory here in Atlanta, but you know, is it kind of spreading out around the world? You you talk about democratization. Um, you know, what about on the research side? Where where are all these breakthroughs coming from? All over the place. 
know, it, it, it really, I think the democratization, absolutely, uh, you know, clinical trials are an important way. So it's not just the lab research uh, and then the, the, you know, the test animal research that needs to happen, but it's also uh, research involving humans. That is a really tough uh, process. It's very regulated. Um, and the ability to now do that with quality in other countries, as opposed to only in the U.S. or only in, in Europe, makes uh, the advancement of, uh, of new technologies and new products, you know, it's sped up. But it's really, it, it, it's a complex situation. So I think the democratization uh, of, of information absolutely helps to speed things up. But at the same time, there's a dampening effect of more regulations. And, you know, uh, a lot of the major diseases have already been adequately covered. You know, if you look at the pharmaceutical market and you see which disease areas still offer double digit growth, um, you know, there was a recent study now that projected that in 2027, double digit growth only is happening in obesity and cancer. And all of the other categories are single-digit growth or even negative growth. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But in the 30 years that I've been in the life sciences space, it's the first time that I've seen that on the whole, uh, you know, there's less than a double-digit growth uh, projection for any disease state. And is that um, is that are we talking um, progression of the disease, or are we talking about like revenue um, dollars associated with the disease? Yeah, it's. The t- I mean, the, what you're looking at there is the total market for, call it antidepressants or drugs in Alzheimer or you know cancer drugs. So it is a combination of all of the you know, medicines that are being used in the different disease states. Um, and that used to be 10, 15 percent growth year over year was kind of the norm. And now it's dropped to, to single digit growth. And in part, you know, the, the area, the era of the, the blockbuster drug, you know, uh, the billion dollar drugs has, has gone away. Uh, but as we know so much more about diseases, and we talked about that uh, a bit earlier too, now it's a kind of a, a, a much more um, segmented market where it's disease A plus component B or disease A plus component C, and each require a different type of, of treatment. So, so in cancer, be like cancer, breast cancer, triple negative, triple positive, BRCA, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah exactly. Wow. Yeah. So breast cancer is no longer one disease or what we may have thought about it as one disease 20 years ago. It really is you know, 20 different diseases. Wow. What a great time to be alive. Um, so, you know, we talked about different parts of the world and I do want to pick your brain before we get off here. Um, you know, being European and, uh, and American, um, how, what, what, uh, you know, you've, you've, you've been multi-continent for a long time now. Um, how, how, what, what trends are you seeing there? You know, is, uh, Europe all that different from America now or things, you know, done a little differently over there or, you know, what's going on in Europe, uh, these days? Yeah, um, uh, g- good question. Now things change over time. I think you know one of the the mantras that I keep try to keep up is is uh, you know let's focus on the similarities and not the differences. You know we're ninety eight percent similar, and there's two percent difference maybe or five percent whatever it is in our, our cultures or the way that we 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 love family, we love success. You know that's universal in every sing- single country. Um, 
So, but the differences make it kind of interesting. And so that's what we focus on quite often. Um, I think in terms of uh, what's happening or the speed of something that is successful in one country, making it over the, the, the big ocean to another country or continent, that has sped up dramatically. You know, so when we moved to the States in 03, you know, uh, internet banking was something that was already pretty big here, was not something that was big in Europe at all. And it took maybe four or five years to actually get to that place. Now, you know, uh, the, the movies that we can see on Netflix are available in Europe, you know, the same week or maybe yeah. the following week, but it's no longer three months. You know, uh, yeah. it used to be the case that if you would fly from uh, Europe to the U.S., you would look for which blockbuster was in the cinema because you would have, uh, you know, two months uh, advance on your friends uh, having seen the newest, whatever, James Bond movie or whatever it was. No longer the case. Yeah. And I think that that's true for any any product, any service. You know, it's that democratization of information is is rampant. Matter of fact, I think one of the last things I watched on Netflix was Fairy, which is, uh, I think, written in Dutch. <laughs> so it's kind yeah, of funny. It's about a Dutch um, inspector, yes. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, the drug world uh, over there. Um, all right, so as a successful entrepreneur, if you could go all the way back around and tell young Jan, you know, something, uh, whisper in the ear, you know, what um, what advice would you give to someone that's just starting out uh, building a company, you know, from the from the uh, ground up right now? Well, lots of stories to, uh, to share. I wouldn't want to do the, the journey again, by the way. You know, I don't want to go back in time <laughs> and be, be that guy. But uh, yeah. if I would tell my son or my daughter something about, you know, they want to start a business and, and this, hear, hear some sage words from an old guy, uh, I would say, uh, you know, belief, have belief in your success, have belief in whatever it is that you're aspiring to do. And stick to that belief because that belief is going to be the the, the 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 north star. You're going to have to follow it, and it's also going to be the sunlight that is going to get you up uh, in the morning and keep you going when things are getting dark. Um, and perseverance. You know, keep at it. Just keep at it. Keep at it. Keep at it. I think you know one one of the things that I help uh, our clients with is kind of you know the sales side business development and. And one of the things I find often is that people are looking. I was no different as a CEO. I always wanted that home run. But, you know, sales and business development really is like playing baseball. It's all about the consistent base hits. It's a numbers game. It's a process. You need to get this many calls or this many visits to this many prospects to this many contracts to a success. And just... There's the occasional home run, uh, but for the rest, it's just numbers game and it's a process. So you subscribe to the money ball theory. You know, why did you hire this guy? You know, he gets on base. <laughs> absolutely. So, I think that, that there is there is I cannot tell you how often I've said to the people in my in my area, uh, entrepreneurs or my staff, read money ball or see money ball. If you haven't done it, see what it means for for business. Uh, you're absolutely hundred percent right. So if uh, you were back in entrepreneur mode and you're like in, I don't know, year five or something and you're grinding it out, um, you know, how, you know, what, what would a mentor, uh, if you had a better mentor, like, like you today, you know, what, what would have changed for you as an entrepreneur? 
Uh, I think that, uh, you know, as, as a entrepreneur, you, you're kind of in a difficult situation, uh, with, uh, your, your mindset is really focused on your success. Um, and you have a team of people that work with you, but they're not incented in the same way. You know, their version, their vision is not going to be as long as yours. Um, so I think, you know, that would be the other thing that I would tell my, my kids or my younger self is, you know, seek mentorship. Seek colleagues, uh, share the stories, uh, share the experiences. Uh, you know, you're, you're not alone at this. You, you may not have walked the same thousand steps in my shoes when I'm talking to you, Todd, as an entrepreneur, but it's a similar journey. And so let's share those experiences and learn from each other. And I think too long in that process, I kind of ground, <laughs> grinded it out myself and think, oh, I'm, I'm alone in this world and you're not. There's plenty of folks that, that are experiencing the same thing. Yep. You need to, um, you would have uh, benefited from hiring Jan at TechCXO. <laughs> well, day, it's a funny, funny story. Yeah. I think, you know, the, uh, going back to uh, the situation where, you know, I got acquired a, a competitor of, of mine in the local market um, was hiring TechCXO folks and was able to scale up with, some, uh, you know, interim or fractional talent. And I, I just didn't know about TechCXO. And I was not able or not in a position to hire the kind of C-suite folks that I thought were going to be really important and impactful to the, to the business because I didn't have the funds to, to support that. Um, and I, the fractional concept really didn't appear, you know, appear to me. That company got sold around the same time that we got sold at a significantly higher multiple. So if I could go rewind, rewind back the clock, yeah, using, you know, fractional services or some way to kind of scale up more quickly. Again, thinking about, hey, you're not alone as well. Use the talent and the experiences of others uh, and the expertise of others. Um, I think I could have scaled up more quickly. So tap the talent, um, you know, you take advantage of the, the availability of uh, very senior fractional talent. And uh, sh that's your secret weapon shortcut to success, uh, it sounds like. Uh, yeah, the, I think that that would have been a really good advice that I would have uh, gladly taken. Awesome. All right. Last question. So. I know you've got stories. I know you've flown back and forth all over the planet. Um, tell us about a, a cool story in the Sky Lounge where the Sky Lounge uh, helped you in some crazy business endeavor. Well, the, the fir first of all, the, I think I would say the, my favorite Sky Lounge is kind of in Amsterdam because when I go there, I have access to some Dutch food that is very difficult to get here in the U.S. Um, so, you know, it's licorice and, and good cheese and that's, not always easy to get. So, you know, food helps you connect with, with your homeland. Uh, I think the craziest story, the craziest experience that I had was living in England, having a client that needed uh, our, you know, in-person attendance at a meeting, but having to be back for another meeting with a client in London the following day. So it became a up and, uh, you know, uh, flying to New York, to meet with the client, present, doing our presentation, getting back to the Sky Lounge, uh, you know, getting taking a shower, redressing, you know, getting dressed for the next meeting and flying back to London the, the same day. Uh, I would not recommend wow. that to anybody. 
Oh man, that's a long day for sure. Did you yeah. close the deal? Or did you make something uh, happen one, while yes, you were there? The first one was more, I was a subject matter expert. So I think the, the company did close on that one, but that was, uh, you know, I was, I was flown in as the subject matter expert. So I guess I helped yeah. close the deal. Yeah. Get out in the world and make something happen. Well, Jan, it's been uh, really great having you here in the Sky Lounge, the virtual one. And, um, you know, where can people uh, follow up with you and find you on the Internet if they want to follow up after this? Yeah, sure. Uh, thank you, Todd, for, for the opportunity to kind of dive back into some of the past and the learnings along the way. Um, so love to meet people you know, in the Sky Lounge at their offices. Uh, you know, do me a shout out at uh, on LinkedIn, uh, LinkedIn uh, slash Jan Haybrook or jan.haybrook at techcxo.com. Great. Thank you, Jan, and uh, bye for now. Thank you, Todd. Thanks for joining us in the Sky Lounge. Please like and subscribe to hear more from Tales from the Sky Lounge here and anywhere else you get your podcasts.